0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hermeneutics 101 podcast. Well, I am coming to you from a very stormy Abilene, Texas. Yes, there have been thunderstorms in the area all morning. Right now, I'm looking out my window. There is rain, there is lightning, there is thunder, there is some minor flooding going on in Abilene, Texas. We've had a little bit of everything today. So as I am speaking, doing this recording, in the background you may hear thunder, you may hear who knows what. I hope it doesn't distract. I think if we can all pretend that all of the sounds in the background coming from the storm... Well, it's really there to add some ambiance to the uh, podcast, to, to add a, a kind of a an interesting soundtrack to my voice. Can Can we pretend? Can we maybe? I don't know. So I just want you to at least know that because if you hear all of that in the background and I don't mention it, you'll spend all the time trying to figure out what the sound is in the background and miss everything that I have to say. So I just want to get that out of the way right up front. But What we need to do is do a proper introduction. So let's do that. Welcome everyone to the Hermeneutics 101 podcast. It is Thursday, May the 2nd, 2019. And I am recording this at 11.45 a.m. Central Time. Now, today, we have a very important lesson for us. We have a very important lesson. Now, this lesson is going to be one of those kinds of lessons where you're going to have to do most of the work because I'm going to present to you in a few minutes a sermon. A sermon preached by someone else, and I want you to listen to this sermon. And as you listen, I'm going to give you some things to consider from a hermeneutical perspective as you listen to this sermon that I'm about to play for you. But, but we have to kind of build a foundation for the sermon. All right, so let's start this way. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you have probably sat in church or turned on Christian radio or were on the internet and you've heard sermons or you've read Christian books or maybe even your own pastor has stood behind the pulpit and preached some words that sound something like this. If you are a child of God, if you are a Christian, if you have believed in Christ by faith alone, if you're trusting in him for your salvation, if you have been born again, you are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the power of God abides in you. And that power that is inside of you will can lead you to a life. In fact, it should lead you to a life of victory. You are more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. You should be living a powerful, victorious Christian life, overcoming sin, overcoming doubt, overcoming anxiety. you should be the model of victory because you are a victor because of Christ and because of God's spirit living and dwelling and empowering you from the inside. Now that sounds so good and I understand that many of those words are taken from scripture there's there some scripture references that that, that kind of they use when they speak like that. They may even quote a scripture or two. But whenever you hear those kinds of sermons, it would be at least, I think, proper to take a step back and go, no, wait a minute. If all of us professing Christians are to be victorious and that we're conquerors and that we're and that we overcome, then why do so many Christian marriages end in divorce. Why do so many Christians, Christian men struggle with porn addiction? Why, why, I mean, we can go on and on and on. You look at the lives of many Christians and do we see victory? Do we see power? Do we see overcomers? Do we see conquerors? Or do we just see normal people struggling with daily life? Sometimes they seem to be doing good, sometimes they don't. And sometimes their life is really not radically different from maybe their neighbor who doesn't claim to be a christian now i know to even say that bothers some christians but i think we have to just be realistic when when you look at the lives of average people who claim to be Christians, sometimes you, it doesn't appear to be so so, so victorious. And, and and now we may be able to say that on a Sunday, but I'm talking Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, when you're not sitting in the pew and life is going on behind closed doors and, and you know what's going on. You know if you feel victorious. And I think even if we can, if we not only take the reality around us, if we open up the pages of our Bible, we do see some very interesting contrast in the Bible. Yes, we have verses that speak of being more than a conqueror. Yes, we have verses speaking of power and God working in us. Yes, we do have those verses, and they cannot be ignored, and they cannot be denied. But we also have verses, say the book of Romans, where Paul describes himself. And he describes himself as someone who the things he doesn't want to do, those are the things he he does, and the things he does want to do, he does it. Like the things he doesn't want to do, he does. And the things he does, he, the things he want to do, he doesn't do. Well, why is Paul having a, such a, a struggle with, hey, I don't want to do this, but that's the thing I do. And the, uh, this is the thing I want to do. And that's the thing I don't do. Why did Paul describe such a struggle? It sounds like he is not. Victorious. Now, there have been many attempts to get around that—that that Paul was describing himself before he became a Christian, and that is that is the state of a person prior to conversion. But that the problem with that is, where do you have a lot of lost people saying, "I want to live for God, I want to live a, a godly life"? Yeah, that's usually not the sound of an unregenerate person. That, that, that just acknowledging that struggle and the desire to want to do good, but then he doesn't do good. Um, that seems to be the, the voice of a converted person. So we have this contrast even in the pages of the Bible. Now, why am I laying such a foundation? Well, the sermon I have for you today, it is an introduction to a series from an Old Testament book. Mm, Okay, Now, now just wait right here. So Somehow, this sermon has something to do with you living a victorious Christian life. That you being an overcomer, that you have power, that you you have victory, and you should be living in that victory. But they're going to get to that subject from an Old Testament book. Now, we just from a hermeneutical perspective, we got to go. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are we sure that that's what an Old Testament book would be teaching? Would an Old Testament book be laying out principles for victory in the Christian life? Or would it be laying out principles for victory for something else? Let me pull up the information from this sermon. All right. Give me one second. It is called Possessing Your Possessions. Possessing Your Possessions. Here is the description This great study in the book of Joshua is going to be a revelation of what God is doing and what God will do for us. God has given to every one of us a possession, and that possession is victory. Every Christian is to be an overcomer, living a victorious Christian life. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a lot going on here. Let me read this again. This great study in the book of Joshua is going to be a revelation of what God is doing and what God will do for us. Now, we've got to stop right there and consider that from a hermeneutical perspective. Is Joshua teaching us what God will do for us? Or is the book of Joshua teaching us what God did for Israel? Now, are there some principles that may be applicable? We could possibly say yes. But we have to be very careful turning the entire book of Joshua into an allegorical study about how you and I may have victory. And the Christian life, and when I say allegorical, I'm not saying this pastor's denying that the Book of Joshua is not giving us actual history. But they take the actual history, turn it into an allegory, or into a, or into a lecture on principles about how you and I are to have the victory. So he, so you go to the Book of Joshua and go look at how Israel had victory. Now we can have victory, but uh, I don't know if if it's, is it an absolute perfect. They did this, I do this, I get what they got. Because, I mean, you're talking there about conquering cities. You're there talking about conquering, you know, uh, physical foes. Are you saying that, you know, if I, you know, and, and I've heard pastors do this. You know, when you come to your Jericho, surrounded by walls, right? You just march around those walls by faith, and they will come crumbling down. Well, Jer- that's not a story about walls around uh, walls and and walled cities that I have to conquer in my life in some allegorical way. It's talking about what God told a specific people to do to overcome a specific city at a specific time. So already, this is questionable all day long. This, this already just raises some questions, but here's what I want to do. I don't like to take pastors out of context. So I'm just going to play the entire program. I'm going to play the entire radio program. So all of their advertisements, everything, all their asking of money, everything is right there. I don't want to remove anything. um, because I want, you know, all their information is there. So I want, you know, it to be fair and to be, to be accurate. Listen, and as you listen, this is what I would ask you to do. Number one, consider the claims that are being made. In other words, if he claims you as a Christian should be living a victorious Christian life, then you could kind of ask a question like this How victorious? Because obviously no one believes I can be sinless. So if I'm never sinless, am I really experiencing victory because I would be constantly sinning? Is that a, how do I am I redefining what vi- victory looks like? Am I redefining it? How, what do I mean by living a victorious Christian life? All right. What do you mean by that? All right. Um, and if I'm not, then why am I not? Is it because I'm not following the principles from the book of Joshua? And if I follow the book of Joshua, the principles in the book of Joshua, how different would my life look? I mean, these are these are these are important questions. And then you should be asking: As he's handling the book of Joshua, is he is he handling it handling it accurately? Is he giving you an accurate understanding of the book or is he just simply using the book as a pretext? In other words, he's not interested in the text. He's interested in using the text as a pretext to get to his discussion and his principles on how to live a victorious Christian life. So when the story is finally done, Israel's irrelevant. What God did for Israel is irrelevant because it really is about us. Now, maybe, maybe he handles it in a very accurate and careful way and we can say, okay, that makes sense, or maybe we have to be skeptical. I don't like to listen to a sermon as a critic. I should listen to a sermon ready to learn from God's words. So balance your criticism and your judging it with also gaining insight to the word of God and hopefully being sped, uh, fed spiritually. I'm being challenged. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fine line by just being a critic, but, be, but at the same time being, okay, you don't want to be a critic, but you want to be, you want to listen carefully, taking every thought into captivity, but also teachable and hungry for spiritual truth. So there, there's a fine balance there. All right, so here comes the sermon. I want you to listen carefully. And this this is one of those situations I would love to get your feedback. I would love to get your feedback. From a hermeneutical perspective, from a hermeneutical perspective, we're talking biblical interpretation here. We're talking how the text is being handled. We're talking exegesis here. We're we're talking all that. But I want to get your your feedback. So when you're done listening to the sermon, let me know what you think. You can email me at newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Or if you're using the VBC 66 app, we have a hermeneutics section. And if you hear this podcast, um, you're not getting all the, the, the things we post about hermeneutics. You need to get the VBC 66 app. And when you get the app, and you can get the app by going to the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store. The Apple App Store, the Google Play Store. Do a search for VBC, which stands for Victory Baptist Church. The number 66, VBC 66. Get the app. And when you get the app... Guess what? You'll see the hermeneutics section, you'll see a church history section, you'll see a Socratic circle section, which deals with philosophy, a food for thought section, which is more just like a daily blog. You see, um, you see so much. Uh, sermons, Bible studies, devotionals, live broadcasts, live radio. So please get the VBC 66 app and then you can go to the hermeneutics section and get all of the content. But here is the sermon. Again, it is called um, Possessing Your Possessions. Possessing your possessions, um, I'm not. I mean, I'm not going to give you any more information than that. I don't want to give you any uh, bias beforehand. I mean, I've kind of already biased you a little bit, but obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. I am skeptical because the Book of Joshua. I think pastors have done some crazy things with the Book of of Joshua. Uh, there's a number of Old Testament books that pastors have. I think in many cases, destroy the actual meaning of the text to turn it into life lessons and principles for Christians in, you know, modern times. We've got to figure out what this book is saying first and foremost about its historical situation, and then once we derive that, we have to be very careful how we apply it, that we don't apply it in such a way that we abuse or misuse the text. Now that, that's that's a that's a whole hermeneutical lesson right there, but we'll get into that later. Here is the sermon. Listen carefully, and please, when you're done, I want to, to I want to talk about this. I want to discuss this. So talk to me about it. Let me know what you think because you may change my perspective. And I'll be more than willing to talk about. It. I have a feeling we'll be talking about this sermon in the future. I do. I could be wrong, but we'll see. All right, here is the sermon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hermeneutics 101 podcast. I'm going to go outside and see if, uh, you know, what destruction is currently taking place. And uh, well, uh, for all the people who are in the area where there's been lots of storms today, I know in the... uh, the, Dallas Fort Worth area there's been some flooding Uh, I think outside of Dallas there was at least two tornadoes small ones some damage so anyone being affected by any of the storms or anywhere you live whatever weather is going on if you've been affected or are affected obviously our prayers go out to you Uh, be safe Um, and uh, you know always I you know don't want to turn this to a lesson about weather but pay attention to the weather because uh, well it's always changing and one thing weather constantly shows us is we're not in control. Um, very important theological lesson there. All right, here is the sermon. Listen carefully. God bless.
1: Thank you for listening. Love Worth Finding is solely a listener and viewer-supported ministry, and this message is available because of the prayers and donations of people just like you. To make a donation, go to lwf.org or call 1-800-274-5683. And thank you for joining us in making an eternal difference.
2: Today we're beginning a new study. We're going to be preaching through the book of Joshua. What a wonderful study it's going to be. The book of Joshua is a thrilling book. It's a book that speaks of victory. And today our first message is going to be called Possessing Your Possessions. God has given to every one of us a possession, and that possession is victory. Every Christian has victory as a gift. Every Christian is to be living a victorious life. Every Christian is to be an overcomer. You say, Brother Rogers, I know some Christians who are not victorious. Well, I know some Christians who are not victorious too. But that's not God's plan. God has given to you victory. And if you're not living a victorious life, I mean right now, if you're not living a victorious life, you, sir, you, lady, you, young person, are living beneath your privileges. And while the Bible admits the possibility of failure... It never assumes the necessity of failure. As a matter of fact, the Bible says we're to always triumph in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Joshua is a book that is written to show us, to show you and me, how that we uh, might have the victory that our Lord wants us to have. And so I want you to notice four simple points. First of all, I want you to notice that there are some possessions to possess. I begin reading in verse 1. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given you. Now the phrase, that have I given you, is an important phrase, so please mark it, note it, underscore it. That have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. Now the Israelites were now in the wilderness. They had come out of the land of Egypt, and they were headed toward Canaan. Canaan is the promised land, the land of victory and the land of peace. And God said, Now you cross over Jordan and possess this great land, this vast land, this bounteous land, this beautiful land, this land that flows with milk and honey. It's yours. I have given it to you. Now go in and take it. That was the history of it. But notice the implications of it. You see, Egypt represents the domain of the lost person. While the Jews were in Egypt, they were under the cruel mace The power of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh had them in his domain. He was a cruel taskmaster, and he represents the devil. And Egypt, the land of bondage, represents the condition of every unsaved boy, girl, man, and woman that's listening to my voice. But remember, they came out of Egypt, and God delivered them out of Egypt by a miracle. The death of the Passover lamb, the opening of the Red Sea, they came out. And that represents the miracle of our new birth when we come out of the land of bondage. But when they came out of Egypt, they entered into a vast desert called the wilderness. Now, it's all right to be in the wilderness for a little while. There is a legitimate wilderness experience, that is, when we're little babies in Christ. But if he stays in the wilderness too long, then the Bible no longer calls him a babe in Christ. The Bible calls him a carnal Christian. The word carnal means fleshly. Now he's saved, he's come out of Egypt, but he's wandering around in the wilderness. He has no victory, he has no joy, he has no accomplishment. He has come out of Egypt, but he's never entered into Canaan. Now Canaan in the Bible, the land that we're discussing right here in verse 4, is the land of victory, it is the land of peace. So many people want to call Canaan heaven, but really, Canaan is not a type of heaven. The promised land is not a type or a picture of heaven. There was warfare in Canaan. I hope there's not going to be any more warfare in heaven. There was sin in Canaan. I hope there's not going to be any sin in heaven. I know there will not be. Uh, They went into Canaan and went back out. I hope once we get to heaven, we're there to stay. Why, there were giants and failures in Canaan. There needn't be, but there were some. So Canaan is not a picture of heaven. But it is a picture of the believer's possession, the victorious life that a Christian is supposed to have. And do you know, I'm afraid that there's some who are listening to me, if they're not careful, they will have come out of Egypt, but they never will have entered into Canaan, and they will die in the wilderness, never knowing what the life of victory is. Why is Canaan in the Bible a picture of the life of victory? Well, in the first place, Canaan meant to these people, Release! You see, up until this time, they had been a nation of slaves. But now they have been set free, and they're to live a life of freedom, a life of release. Romans chapter 6, verse 14, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Canaan represents freedom. The Bible says, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Did you know? that those people today who are talking the most about freedom, I'm talking about the new morality and all of that business, which is the old immorality under a new name, <laughs> they talk more about freedom and have less of it. The Bible calls them the servants of sin, and they say, I'm free, I don't have to listen to that old Bible, I don't have to do this, I don't have to do that, I want to be free! <laughs> they say they're free, but Satan says, jump, and they say, how high? They're slaves to their lust. They're slaves to their passion. They're slaves to their temper. They're slaves to their impulses. But Jesus sets us free. And the land of Canaan is a land of release. But not only was it for these Jews a land of release, but it was also for them a land of refreshment. You see, up until this time, they had been in the desert. And do you know what they had in the desert to eat? What? Manna. And do you know how many times they ate it? Three times a day. And you know how many days in the week they ate it? Seven days a week. You know how many years? Forty years. Manna in the morning, manna in the evening, and manna at supper time. And I want to tell you, they'd had it up to here with manna. Really. They were sick and tired of it. They said, Our souls loathe this light bread. That's what they called it. They were sick of manna. But you see, Canaan was a land of corn and wine. Canaan was a land of of luscious grapes and pomegranates. Canaan was a land of milk and honey. It was a land of abundance. Don't you want to be refreshed? Aren't you tired of being bored with your Christian life? You know, I know folks have just enough religion to make them miserable. They have come out of Egypt, but they've never entered into Canaan. I heard about a man who hadn't been to church for a long time. His pastor went to see him. He said... Why haven't you been there? He said, well, the kids have been sick, and you know the weather, it's been raining. It's rained every day, rain, rain, rain. The pastor said, but it's dry at church. He said, yes, and that's another reason (laughs) I haven't come. Oh, aren't you tired of this old dry as dust, pale as a corpse, dead as old King Tut type of Christianity? Don't you want something that's alive? Don't you want refreshment? Aren't you ready for the land of corn and wine? Don't you want a little milk and honey? Well, that's the land of Canaan. It was a land of release. It was a land of refreshment, and it was also a land of rest. The book of Hebrews calls it a land of rest. Now, rest doesn't mean inactivity. It's not rest from work. It's rest while you work. It's the difference in burning the wick or burning the oil. A Christian is to have a rest. His life is marked by rest the believers rest. Jesus said, come unto me, and I will give you rest. But before they entered into Canaan, they knew no rest. They had come out of Egypt, but they didn't know any rest. They had gone round and round and round and round. In the wilderness, they knew every grain of sand by name. They'd sat on every cactus. But they had not found rest. Don't you want rest unto your souls? Wouldn't you just kind of like to relax in the arms of Jesus and, and find the believer's rest? That's what the land of Canaan pictures. And not only does it picture that, but it pictures reality, reality. You see, up until this time, they'd had sermons about Canaan. They'd had descriptions of Canaan. The Lord had told them what a wonderful land Canaan was, but they had not yet experienced it. Aren't you tired of listening to sermons? But that's all. Wouldn't you like for some of this to be reality? Do you know there are folks who come to church and listen to sermons who have no more intention of applying what they hear than they do what they see on television? They just simply watch it. It's something to hear, but not something really to take in and something to live. Wouldn't you like for your doctrine to turn to reality and for this preaching to turn to experience? God wants you to live a victorious life. Now here's the key to the whole thing. God has already given you victory. Did you hear me? God has given you victory. You say, well, why don't I have it then if God has given it to me? God has given it to you, but you haven't taken it. You have not yet possessed your possessions. The key to all of this is verse 3. Look at it. God says, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given you. Now notice, they weren't even in the land yet. They hadn't even crossed the River Jordan yet. And God says, every place that the sole of your foot sets down every place that you tread upon, that have I given you. Not I'm going to give it to you, I've already given it to you. It's yours, now go take it. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he bowed his head and he said, it is finished. The victory was won. Jesus at Calvary said, now is the prince of this world cast out. Did you know the devil is already defeated? You say, well, he doesn't act like it. He hopes you don't find it out. He is already defeated. Jesus on the cross defeated Satan. Jesus, by the power of his redemptive death, has given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you now have the victory. Christians don't pray for victory. They pray from victory. The victory has already been won. The land of victory is yours. Canaan, representing release, refreshment, and rest, and reality... That land is your land. But you are going to have to put the foot of faith upon the promises of God and say, this is mine, I claim it. And until you do, you'll never know reality. We need to possess our possessions. Did you know it's possible to have something and still not have it? Some of you have books in your library that you haven't read. Now I want to ask you a question, whose book is it? It's your book, but it's not your book because you haven't read it. You have not yet possessed your possession. When I was a little boy, my mother told me of an immigrant coming from uh, the old country to this country, and he bought a passage on an ocean liner. But wanting to save money, he took along some cheese and crackers, and while everyone else was feasting there in the dining room, he was eating cheese and crackers. He almost starved till he discovered that the cost of his meals was also included in the ticket. (laughs) Oh, you see, he'd already paid. I mean, it was his, but he failed to possess his possessions. I want to tell you that the devil does not want you to know that God has given you the land of Canaan. God has given you rest. God has given you refreshment. God has given you reality. God has given it to you. Listen, the Bible says that he hath given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not will give, hath given all things, in Jesus Christ you're complete. One of these days we're going to wake up to understand what God has already given His children. The Christian life is simply possessing your possessions. Do you know what the life of victory is? It is simply walking on conquered ground. It is putting down your feet by faith on the promises of God and saying, This promise is mine. It is mine. I claim it. So the first principle is there is a possession to possess. Now the second principle is this. There is a promise to plead. Notice verse 5. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all of the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Now not only did God tell them about their possession. But God also gave them a promise. And remember, all these things happened to them, for examples, to us. Now, uh, look at this promise, and let's analyze it. First of all, the Lord gives the promise of a conquering power. Notice in verse 5, There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. There's power to do everything that God asks you to do. You say, Brother Rogers, I don't have the power to cross the River Jordan. I don't have the power to drive out the giants of fear and doubt and lust and hate and envy and jealousy and worry. I don't have the power. No, but dear friend, these enemies, these giants cannot stand before you if you go in the name of Jesus, if you claim His power. Living victoriously is not your responsibility. It is rather your response to God's ability. When you understand this, when you understand that God doesn't call upon you to do anything, but God makes a promise that what He demands of you, He will do through you, then you'll learn to live the victorious life. And God is saying that you are to be more than a conqueror. That's what Paul meant in the New Testament when he said in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, Yea, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. More than conquerors. Super conquerors. All right, listen, listen. This promise is the promise of a conquering power and it is the promise of a continuing presence. Look again, verse 5. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all of the days of thy life as I was with Moses. So I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Now that's wonderful, a continual, constant presence. You see, what the Lord was saying is that the promises didn't die with Moses. God made a promise to Moses, but He reconfirmed it to Joshua. And the promises didn't die with Joshua. That's the reason I said this book is not what God has said. It is what God is saying. You know, so many times we're prone to take these promises and we're prone to date them and say, wouldn't it have been wonderful to live back then? Friend, I'd rather be living now than to live back then. God was with Joshua. He's inside me. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You say, Brother Rogers, can we take these applications and make them real to us today? Of course we can. And that's what the writer of Hebrews meant when he wrote in Hebrews chapter uh, 13, verse 5. He quoted this same promise. When the writer of Hebrews was trying to encourage those Christians... He said, For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. And when he said that, when did God say it? God said it right here in the book of Joshua. And so he's saying, Christians, God's already said it. Here's a principle. You might as well claim it. Are you familiar with what is called the Amplified Bible? Sort of an expanded translation. Now, it's not a distortion or a reading into the Bible, but it's taking every Greek word and kind of squeezing all the juice out of it. You know, just getting every drop out of it. I heard of a man who was a uh, strong man in a circus, and he would take a lemon and squeeze all the juice out of it. And then they offered $100 to anyone else who could get one more drop of juice out of it. And everybody tried. But one little scrawny fella came up there and took hold of that lemon and started to squeeze it. One, two, three, four, five drops came out. They said, Who on earth are you? He said, I'm the treasurer of the Baptist Church. <laughs> now... Let me tell you something. I want us to squeeze all the juice out of this verse. I want you to listen to it. Hebrews 13, 5 in the Amplified New Testament. For he, God himself, has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless nor forsake, nor let you down, relax my hold upon you, assuredly not. <laughs> Isn't that good? I will not, I will not, I will not. You see, our Greek scholars tell us that this is an intensive form that should be repeated three times. I heard of a young seminary student who learned that in seminary went out to his country church and was trying to tell a little lady this who had known and loved the Bible all of her life. And she'd live by that promise, "I will not leave thee, nor forsake thee." And he was explaining to her how it should be, "I will not, I will, not, I will not." She said with a twinkle in her eye, "God may have to say it three times for you Greek fellers, but once is enough for me." Oh, how wonderful, How wonderful to know that not only is there the promise of his conquering power, but there is the promise of his continuing presence. Now, friend, if you've got his power, if you've got his presence, you've got all you need to take your Canaan. There is a land of victory. And not only should you possess your possessions, but you should plead your promise. He hath said, I will not leave thee nor forsake thee. Now, the third thing I want you to notice, not only is there a possession to possess and not only is there a promise to plead, but therefore there is a person to prepare. Notice verse 7. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Now, we've said that God gives the victory. And uh, there's nothing we can do to get the victory. God already gives it to us. And yet here this verse tells us that we've got to be strong, we've got to be courageous, and we've got to be obedient. And we say, now, Pastor, those are exactly the three things I'm not. I'm not strong. I'm weak. I'm not courageous. I'm a coward. And I'm certainly not obedient. I turn from the right and the left all the time to the right and the left. I just don't obey the word of God like I ought. So how can I be? How, how is God asking me, little old me, little old weak me, to be strong and to be courageous in all of these things? Well, look, Joshua was flesh and blood just like you, and here's the secret. Are you listening? Everything God demands of you, God supplies for you. Behind every command of God is the omnipotent power of God to carry out that command. You see, God doesn't want you to be strong in your strength. God doesn't want you to be bold in your strength. God doesn't want you to be obedient in your strength. You see, you have to understand verse 7 in the light of verse 5. And in verse 6, where our Lord is saying, I'm going to be with you. I am going to strengthen you. I will not leave you. And because of that, He tells us to be strong. Do you understand? It's not my strength, it's his strength in me. Did you know that weak people can choose to be strong? Did you know that you can have strength by choice? Did you know that cowardly people can choose to be bold? Did you know that disobedient people can literally actually choose to be obedient? But there is a person to prepare. And if you think that you're going to sit idly by then you're wrong. Victory is God's doing. God gives us victory. And then God promises us victory. But not only is there possession to possess, not only is there promise to plead, there is a person to prepare. Are you today willing to say, I will by the grace of God be strong? By the grace of God I will be courageous. By the grace of God I will be obedient. There is a person to prepare. Now finally there is a plan to pursue. And I want us to notice it in verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Here's God's plan. Now he, God showed us our possessions, God gave us a promise, God told us to prepare, and then God gave us a plan for taking the land. It's right here in verse 8. Now let's look at it in three parts. First of all, we are to proclaim the word of God. Look at it again. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. The word of God is to dwell in us richly, but not only is it to be in us, we are to be speaking the word of God. There is power in the word of God. Did you know that you can use the word of God as a sword with which to take the land? Did you know that? That the word of God in your mouth is like a sharp two-edged sword. The devil would come against you as he came against Jesus. But Jesus vanquished Satan by the word. The word was in his mouth. He proclaimed it. All oh, there's power in speaking the very words of the scripture. Have you used the scripture as your battle axe? Have you used this word of God as a hammer? to break the rock in pieces? Have you used it as your power of attorney when you go in to take the land that God Almighty has given unto you? We are to proclaim the word. I like that verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 that says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. Are the words of your mouth edifying? John Bunyan, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was converted by listening to the conversation of several women. I wonder if someone were to eavesdrop on your conversation, would they be saved as a result? You see, we are to proclaim the Word of God. We are to let the Word of God be in our mouths. That's part of the victory. But not only are we to proclaim the Word of God, look again in verse 8, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. We are to ponder the Word of God. It's not simply enough to quote it. We are to turn it over in our minds. I never preach a sermon, but what I take the Word of God, and I chew on it, and I digest it, and I turn it over and over and over in my mind, and all night long when I'm sleeping, I'm preaching. Did you know that? And when I, when I wake up in the morning, conscious of the fact that the Word of God has been going through my mind, up and down, through my mind, to ponder the Word of God, to meditate on it. This word meditate has the connotations and the overtone of our word humming. You know, you ever go around have a little ditty in your mind, a little tune that you just can't get out of your mind, and you just hum it? There's a little tune you can't get out of your mind. The Word of God is to be like that. It's, it's like a, a something that you just hum, that you go over and over, and just uh, keep the Word of God in your heart and in your mind. You see, it must be absorbed in your system before it can do you any good. It's not enough just simply to read the Word, we are to take the Word of God and let it dwell in our minds. We are to chew on it. We are to hunt it. We are to meditate upon the Word of God. We are to ponder it. Now watch. Here's the plan to pursue. Number one, proclaim the Word of God. Use it as your authority, as your sword, as your power of authority, your power of attorney. Number two, we are to ponder the Word of God. We are to meditate. We are to let the Word of God dwell in us richly. And thirdly, and here's where the rubber meets the road, we are to practice it. Now look, right now we've been all giddy talking about possessing our possessions. It's all sounded good. Now some of you are going to tune me out if you're not careful. Look at the last part of verse 8. Meditate therein day and night that in order to, thou mayest observe to do. According to all that is written therein, for then, and may I say only then, thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and thou shalt have good success. You see, the proclamation and the pondering of the Word of God is to produce in us the obedience to the Word of God. We are to proclaim it, we are to ponder it, but we are to practice the Word of God. This is the way to possess your possessions. You are to enter into that land with the title deed, the Word of God, and the sword, the Word of God, in your hands, practicing obeying the Word of God. Do you want me to tell you the proof of whether you believe the Bible? Do you obey it? You see, when you obey the Bible, what you're saying is, God, I believe it so much, and God, I trust you so much, that I'm going to do what you tell me to do. Now, remember we said that Canaan was reality? That God becomes real? Do you know I'm speaking to some people today who hear sermons about God, but God is not real to them. They say, Oh God, I wish you were real. I wish that you were real. I wish that I knew you. Do you want me to tell you how to make God real to you? Listen, meditation gives you knowledge about God. Obedience gives you knowledge of God. Let me say that again. Meditation gives you knowledge about God. Obedience gives you knowledge of God. There is no way to know God without obeying God. Let me give you a scripture from the New Testament. Turn to John chapter 14, verse 21. He that hath my commandments, that's the word of God, and keepeth them, The word keep means to obey, to do what's contained therein. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Now you can say all you want about loving Jesus, but if you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Do you want the Lord to manifest Himself to you? Do you want the Lord to be very real to you, to show Himself to you? Then, dear friend, if you will take the commandments of God and begin to keep those commandments, you're going to find out that the Lord is going to manifest Himself to you. The Lord is going to make Himself extremely real to you. And the reason that God seems distant to some people and and that all of this seems unrelated is they don't keep the Word of God the reason some people never enter into Canaan, the reason some people never have victory, the reason some people never know the land of corn and wine, the land of milk and honey, the land of figs and grapes and pomegranates is that they do not obey the Word of God. There is a possession to possess. God has given you victory. There is a promise to plead. God says, I will be with you and no one will be able to stand against you. There is a person to prepare And Oh, friend, there's a plan to pursue. We are to proclaim the word of God. We are to ponder the word of God. We are to practice the word of God. And then God gives us a promise. Look in verse 9. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever. Thou goest. Say, don't you think it's about time that you possessed your possessions? Don't you think that it's about time that you started putting forward the foot of faith and saying, this one is mine, my Lord has given it to me. And I'm not going to let the giants of doubt, despair, move me out of this land. Let me talk to those of you who are not saved right now. If you should die right now, you'd go straight to hell. You've never received Christ. Your sins are not forgiven. And yet there's a sense in which salvation is yours, but you're still not saved. Salvation is yours because Jesus Christ died for you. Salvation is yours because Jesus Christ bought it on the cross. It's paid for, paid in full with the rich red royal ruby blood of Jesus on the cross. He died for your sins. He died for the sins of the entire world, and yet it's not yours. And you want me to tell you why it's not yours? It's yours, but it's not yours, because you have not yet possessed your possession. There is nothing for you to do to make yourself qualified for salvation. Jesus has already made you qualified. Your salvation is bought and paid for with the crimson blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it will not be yours until you possess your possession. Until you say, I claim by faith what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. Others of you have done that. You've come out of Egypt, but you've stopped short. You've bogged down in the wilderness. You're stuck in the glaring desert sand, and you want a life of victory. Dear friend, it's time that you possessed your possession. It's time that you said, my God has given it to me. I don't have to beg him for it. I'm going to thank him for it. And I'm going to take the word of God as my sword, and I enter in. And there's no power of hell that's going to stop me. By the grace of God, I'm going to be a victorious Christian.
1: We pray that God has blessed you as you've listened to this message. If you'd like additional copies or information about other resources, write to us at Loveworth Finding, P.O. Box 38300, Memphis, Tennessee, 38183. You can also visit our online bookstore at lwf.org. In the U.S., you can place Visa or MasterCard orders by calling 1-800-274-5683, Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Central Time. Thank you, and may God richly bless you.